So today we wrap up our series on Advent. We've been talking about missing Advent and been talking about all the things that we miss at this time of year. Like we miss hope, we miss peace, we miss love. We're supposed to be feeling these things. Like we're supposed to be feeling joy at this time of year. But for many of us, it's a season in which we don't feel joy. We actually feel the opposite of joy at this time of year. And so we're going to talk about how we can discover that. But I want to start here. I just finished this book uh, this week, uh, just a day or two ago. I finished this on Audible. Uh, Doris Kearns Goodwin, Leadership in Turbulent Times. And uh, it seemed like an apt title. So I, I thought, maybe, this, maybe I can learn something here. And what she does, uh, Goodwin, of course, is famous for her book, A Team of Rivals, about Lincoln. But she profiles four U.S. presidents that led our country through times of crisis. Abraham Lincoln, Theodore Roosevelt. Uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt and Lyndon B. Johnson. And all of these presidents, regardless of their political party or their personal character flaws and limitations and those things, all of them led us in some way through crisis as a nation. Abraham Lincoln, of course, the great emancipator and led us through the Civil War. Theodore Roosevelt led us through the lesser-known coal strike of 1902, which I didn't know anything about until I read this book, but it was a pretty big deal at the time. Um, and he was the trust buster and then FDR led us through the Great Depression and World War II and Lyndon B. Johnson through the tumultuous 60s and the passage of the Civil Rights Act in 64 and the Voting Rights Act in 65. And so what she does is she takes these four presidents and looks for characteristics that they share in common that made them effective leaders. And so things like moral clarity or emotional intelligence or courage or decisiveness. And so she highlights these things in each of their lives. But as she tells their backstory, there was one characteristic she shared that all of them had in common that was not a leadership characteristic. Although it shaped them as leaders and it shaped them as people. But as I listened to these stories, it was the one that got my attention. Because it's, it's, we traditionally don't associate it with leadership. Matter of fact, we would say somebody that has this characteristic or has this trait would not be an effective leader. We would even question their ability to lead a happy and successful life. But every single one of these presidents, every single one of these people that we look at as you know, these great, effective, and transformational leaders, every one of them shared this trait. And in some weird sense, when I, when I heard their stories... It, 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 it was encouraging for me to hear that all of these great leaders shared this one thing in common. And it was depression. Not what you would expect. I mean, we know about Lincoln. Lincoln was famous for dealing with melancholy, what they called it at the time, because he'd lost a young son and, and led our country through you know, the brutalness of the Civil War. And so before and during his presidency, Lincoln often dealt with depression. But all these other guys dealt with the same. Theodore Roosevelt uh, lost his wife uh, four years into their marriage. Two days after the birth of their daughter, he actually disappeared for three years. He went out west. We kind of romanticize it. But him going out west and leaving his daughter with his family was the way he dealt with his depression and the grief that he felt during that time. And he said he almost came undone by that. FDR, when he got the diagnosis of polio, and, and nearly took away all of his abilities. But it took away his ability to walk. And he had to fight through that. And the, the depression as he laid in bed trying to fight that awful evil um, disease and even Linda B. Johnson struggled with depression. And like I said, in this, in this weird sense, it was like encouraging to me 
because I'm thinking these, these people that we kind of lift up as, as, as legendary heroes or whatever, you know, they're, they're just normal people. And they struggled with self-doubt and they struggled with despair and they struggled with sadness because they're human. And that's just part of the human experience. And no, all of them didn't have clinical depression. And all of us who struggle with depression at different times throughout the year don't have clinical depression. But we all struggle with periods in our life where we have sadness or grief or, or despair. And that's not a sign of spiritual weakness. That's not a sign of moral failure. That's just normal. It's just part of the human experience. It's experiencing feelings that God gave us. And it, it's, it's not an indication that something is wrong with us. It's just something that everybody deals with. And especially at this time of year. I, I can't tell you the number of folks that reach out to me during the months of November and December and, and some of them reach out for help and some of them just say it, you know, just in passing. But the number of people who say the holidays are the hardest time of the year for me. Like it usually starts right around Thanksgiving. And it goes all the way through the end of the year. And it's just this incredibly difficult time. It's I wrestle with depression or I wrestle with sadness during this time. And I know I'm not supposed to. And that's the thing. We feel guilty about it. We feel guilty like, you know, it's the most wonderful time of the year. But for many people, it's the, it's the saddest and loneliest time of the year. And we feel guilty that we feel that way. And, and there's, there's all of these different reasons that we could probably go into. I mean, that we put intense pressure on ourselves during Christmas to have the perfect Christmas. And it's rarely perfect. And so we, when, when you've got the expectations set that high and the family fight happens or the, the dinner just doesn't go off like it's supposed to or this year it gets canceled because of COVID or whatever the expectations are that we've set so high when we don't meet those expectations, we feel the sadness and grief for that. Um, it's it's a time of year when we want to be with people. And when we can't be with people, uh, we feel that sadness and depression start to sink in. And it's this time of incredible nostalgia. Like we just, we, we build up, there's so much nostalgia associated with Christmas and the holidays and family that when we don't have family with us, we feel like we can't celebrate it. Like how, how am I supposed to celebrate Christmas with when mom's not with us anymore? How am I supposed to celebrate Christmas when, when dad's not with us or, or when we're not together anymore? I mean, how am I supposed to have joy in this time of year when I've lost so much? And it comes up for a lot, a lot of people. And today what I wanted to take just a little bit of time to talk about is how do you find joy when joy is missing? Like, where does that come from? How do you, how do you find joy in the midst of a season in which many people experience and feel depression. The text I want to take you to is John chapter 16. So if you got a Bible with you, you can go ahead and, and turn over there. It's a familiar text. And uh, we're actually going to, Ebony had no idea, the, the, the reading that she did for the, the call to worship this morning is what we're going to end the message with. So I, the Spirit had an idea, Ebony, but uh, you and I didn't talk about that before today. But I want to start with John 16. And this is um, Jesus speaking to his disciples. And Jesus knows something difficult is coming for them. So this is right before the cross. 
And this all takes place around the Last Supper. Judas has gone to betray Jesus. He's going to be arrested. He's going to be beaten. The disciples are all going to run away in fear. He's going to die a brutal death on the cross. So Jesus knows all this is coming. And he's trying to prepare his disciples for it. Not, not just mentally, but emotionally. He's trying to prepare his disciples for this. And so he starts in verse 16. We'll just start there to get the whole context of what he says. Um, chapter 16... Verse 16, there it is. All right. Jesus went on to say, hey, Ty, do you mind running through those scriptures for me when I'm, when I'm in there? Yeah. So Jesus went on to say, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me. At this, some of his disciples said to one another, what does he mean by saying in a little while you'll see me no more, and then after a little while you're going to see me, and because I'm going to the Father. And they kept asking, what does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he's saying. And Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this, and so he said to them, Are you asking one another what I meant when I said in a little while you'll see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? And, of course, we know what he's talking about because we know the rest of the story. And so we know he's talking about his death, his burial, and his resurrection. We know that he, he's, he's, you know, this is what he means by you're going to see me and not see me. His disciples don't yet understand that. Now, he's been talking about this and telling them and trying to prepare them, but it ha- the reality of it hasn't really sunk in. It's, it's just like uh, any of you who've lost a loved one, you know, the doctors and hospice and all that told us, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. And when it came, we still weren't quite fully prepared for it because e- even though people have been telling us, we just emotionally we weren't ready for it. And... So he's trying to prepare his disciples, but I want you to pay attention to what he says in verse 20. Because in verse 20, he starts to tell them, this is what you're going to feel. And listen to this and see if it doesn't speak to us uh, today as well. He says, very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come, but when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of the joy that child is born into the world. So with you, now is the time of grief, but I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. In that day, you will no longer ask me anything. Very truly, I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask, and you will receive. And your joy will be made complete. And so, so what you hear Jesus doing is, is mixing in two themes together in a very powerful way. And he talks about grief. And he talks about joy. And he talks about the sorrow that they're going to feel. But he talks about the rejoicing that they're going to do as well. And, and there's so much going on in here um, that I want to talk about. I just want to pull out a few things for you to see. First that I want you to see is notice what Jesus doesn't say. Jesus doesn't try to dismiss their grief. Jesus doesn't say, uh, you know, get over it. He doesn't say, pull yourselves together. He doesn't say, you know, what are you crying for? You know, I mean, he doesn't, like, we do that a lot with, with other people. We, we do that a lot with our kids, if you think about it, when they're feeling some kind of sadness or, or they're upset or they're crying about something. We tend to say, you know, get over it. Stop your crying. Pull yourself together and that kind of stuff. We do it with each other, but we're a lot gentler about that when we do it with each other. But we kind of, we, I mean, there's, we like, what, you know, why, why are you so upset? Why is this bothering you so much? Why do you have so much grief? Don't you know that, you know, Jesus is there? Don't you know that the eternal life, like, we tend to 
we tend to associate in Christian circles uh, grief with, with shame, like we shame people for, for grieving, and, and we really shouldn't because Jesus right here is, is acknowledging that you will experience grief. He's telling them you're going to experience it, and he welcomes it as a part of the normal human experience. Like this is exactly how you should feel in this time. The second thing that Jesus does is explains uh, how, how joy or grief is a pathway to joy. Like he, he, he points that, yes, you will experience sadness. Yes, you will experience grief. Yes, you will you feel these feelings of depression. But joy is coming. Psalm 30 talks about joy comes in the morning. You will, in other words, this is just for a season. This is for a period of time. This is not something that's going to last forever. Rejoicing will come. And uh, it, that's, it's very difficult for us to even recognize that, especially when we are weeping and mourning while the world rejoices. But, we, but joy comes. Hang tight because joy is coming. You will see again and you will rejoice. And then the third thing Jesus does, and this is the part that I, I really think we miss and we, and we don't do a whole lot of. The third thing he does is look at verse 24. He tells them to ask for it. He says, you'll receive anything you ask for in my name. Ask and you will receive. And he's talking specifically about joy. And he, asks, he tells them to ask for joy. To, to, in other words, pray for joy so that your joy may be made complete. And, and this is different. This is not praying for happiness. There's a difference, obviously, between joy and happiness because happiness is circumstantial and joy is not. Um, joy is like a deeper level of happiness is the way I would describe it. It's a deeper level of happiness that's not based on circumstantial feelings of exuberance or pleasure. It, it, it has more to do with contentment, and it has more to do with hope, and it has more to do with, with being able to see a bigger picture or a, or a broader, not a bigger, a deeper picture of what life is really all about. And he's kind of describing this for his disciples because his disciples will experience grief again. It's not like once Jesus was resurrected, they never experienced grief again the rest of their lives. Because Jesus is resurrected, he's defeated life and, I mean, defeated sin and death, so what do we have to be scared of? I mean, they're still going to experience sadness. They'll still experience grief, but they experience it at a different level. I think this is kind of what he's talking about with your joy will be complete like, once you have the promise and the hope of the resurrection, your joy is complete because you know that there's something more to life. There's something bigger. There's something deeper. Uh, there's, it's, it's more than just what we experience today. It's more than just what we experience on this world. It's more than just what we experience in the month of December. Like, there's something more to life. And, yes, you may mourn for a season and you may grieve for a season, but rejoicing will come. Joy will come. So you hold out with this hope and you hold out with this contentment that even though I'm feeling this right now, joy will come. That's the promise of Scripture. And, I mean, in a lot of ways, that's the promise of Christmas, Right? I mean, that's the, the, the weary world rejoices. That's what we're going to talk about on Christmas Eve. Like, there's, the, the, the Jesus comes into, steps into this world of darkness, and God steps into this world to say, there is hope, and I am with you, and I will go with you. And, and because of that, that's why the angels talk about, and, and the shepherds, you know, that, that there's, there's joy, and we can rejoice because God has stepped into our suffering. God has stepped into us, in our, our darkness, and he leads us to the light. Now, I, I was trying to come up with some way, as I, I looked at this passage this week and, and thinking through, like, how to, I was looking for some way to drive this point home and to, to really emphasize the idea that, 
you know, if we would acknowledge and accept our, our grief, then that leads us to joy. And, you know, like there's a, there's a, there's a deeper level of joy that, that's deeper than just circumstantial happiness. And so I was trying to kind of, how do I drive this point home? And I ran across a YouTube channel that uh, is, is really genius. Okay. It, it's called uh, Cinema Therapy. And what it is, is it's a therapist and a filmmaker sit down and they watch movies together and explore the emotional themes of the movies. So it's just like at the movies, but it's a therapist doing it instead of a pastor. Like we do at the movies every summer and we look for the spiritual themes of the movies. Well, this is a therapist looking at the emotional themes of the movies. And a lot of times the emotional themes and the spiritual themes meld together because I, I say often, you know, you can't be spiritually mature unless you're also emotionally healthy. Those two things go together. And this particular one, they were previewing the film Inside Out. And you remember this movie from several years ago. We actually used it. I used it. I preached on this movie. And uh, it's a Disney Pixar film in which they personify your emotions. And so it's about this little girl named Riley. Her family moves to a new town. Riley's having struggling to adjust to the new town and she's trying to like everybody's telling her to kind of pull, their, pull herself together you know just perk up you got this put on the happy face smile be joyful and the movie talks about what's going on in Riley's head and so it personifies the emotions of joy sadness anger disgust and fear and each of those emotions are constantly fighting for the control panel in Riley's head They're, they want to control the way she feels and uh, the dominant character in it is Joy. Amy Poehler plays Joy, and, and Joy's like this really exuberant, bubbly, you know, what we think of happiness. So we, you know, and so Joy is the dominant character because Joy feels like she should always have the control panel. She should always be in charge. We should always feel joyful 100% of the time. That's just the way life ought to be. You, know, you, know, you put the smile on even if you don't feel like smiling. And the enemy of Joy in the movie is sadness. You know, like, don't let, and she tells sadness at the beginning, don't touch the control panel. You're going to ruin everything. Just leave it alone. And um, the, the memories of Riley are represented by these little glowing, glowing balls, that, like her memories. And Joy wants all of those memories to be happy. She wants all of them to be yellow and not blue. And so she warns sadness at the beginning of the movie, like, don't touch the memories. You're going to make them sad. Leave the memories alone. And... Um, over the course of the film, Joy gets lost in Riley's kind of long-term memory. I'm just recapping it because it's been a while since you've probably seen this film. But Joy gets lost, and at this specific point, Riley's control panel grays out, which is kind of symbolic of depression. It, she just can't feel anything anymore. She can't feel any joy anymore. She can't feel any anger anymore. She just, her control panel grays out, and the only way that it's rescued is by giving sadness a little bit of control. And so I, I, that, I, I'm just setting up the clip. I want to show you. Uh, it's a four-minute clip, which is long, but the whole thing was like 30 minutes. And I wanted to show you about 28 of it. But I, I'm not going to do that. So I, I just want to show you a four-minute clip of these guys talking about this specific point in the movie where they finally decide to let sadness have its appropriate place in, in Riley's life. So... Let's watch this together. Oh. Oh. Joy, you gotta fix this. Get up there. Sadness, it's up to you. Me? Sadness? 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 
I can't, Joy. Yes, you can. Riley needs you. about this is they've never trusted sadness with anything before right and now they're giving her like the entire panel yeah because sadness has to be felt and here instead of joy trying to fix it or anybody else or anger or fear sadness is what brings riley back because she realizes i need my family because i'm hurting instead of just shut down Joy coming full circle and realizing, you know, what she said at the beginning of the movie. Yeah. Don't touch them, because then they'll all. <laughs> but it's what needs to happen. All these happy memories from the past, they're now sad memories because they're gone, because that time has passed. Yep. And Riley needs to mourn that, and her family needs to mourn that. And they've been following Joy's path the whole time of being like, no. Everything's great, everything's fine, we're good in our new city, it's okay, but it's not okay. But it's okay that it's not okay. Yeah, exactly. Well, you finally did it. You got me to cry. <laughs> For me, my mom's, my mom's gone, my mom's dead. Every happy memory I have of her is colored in blue. Like every single one is sad too, but that's what makes them beautiful. And we're crying, but our crew is, is like doing the ugly cry over there. Yeah, it's real bad over yeah, there. Yeah, <laughs> So what's really impactful to me about this, oh gosh, I love this, is that there is Oh crap, and now they're gonna turn yellow. Curse you, Pixar are so good. Not just yellow. Oh yeah. You remember what happens? Yeah, that's they right. A new memory. Bittersweet. It's both. There is a type of love that is only experienced through sadness. There's a type of joy that is only experienced through grief. And in a lot of ways, it's the most beautiful of all because when we give each other comfort, we show compassion, we show empathy. That's the most beautiful form of love there is. Not, hey, I like you, or I appreciate your company, or I think you're fun, or any of these affirming, feel-good things, mm -hmm. but you're suffering, and I'm not gonna leave you. Yeah. You know, you're struggling, and I'm here with you, and I love you, and you're not alone. And that is deeper and more profound and more lasting love. So I think of families and I think of friendships and I think of marriages that go the distance. They don't go the distance because things weren't hard. You know, they go the distance because things were awful. Right. <laughs> and they found each other through that. As a therapist, this is one of my favorite films because it teaches us to embrace 
sadness as a means of being close and developing compassion and empathy and, and how that builds relationships in a way that nothing else really can. Yeah. The, you hear him talking about a deeper level of joy, and he says something that on the surface really doesn't make any sense until, but until you experience it, you don't really understand it. He says there's a type of joy that only comes through grief. And you're like, how do, how do joy and grief coexist? How does that possibly coexist? The example of his mom is where all that comes. Like for, for him, every memory of his mom is tinged in blue because those, those memories are in the past. But it, it's, it's, there's a deeper level of joy that's being experienced. And, and the way I kind of put it together as I hear them talk about that is, you know, without sadness, you can't experience empathy. And without empathy, you can't experience connection. And without connection, you can't experience joy. I mean, that, that's how it comes full circle back together. It's, it's through that, through accepting that sadness as a normal and natural feeling, and it's just something we all deal with. We're able to empathize with others who are in that same situation. That's able to build connection with those folks that are in that situation. And through connection, we're able to build joy. And uh, that's what God ultimately did for us. I mean, that's, that's the story of the incarnation. That's the story of Jesus coming to this earth is that God put himself in our position and empathized with our pain and our hurt and our suffering. And through that, he connected with us and made our joy complete. So I, I want to pray for us uh, the 30th Psalm. That's the way I want to close this message. We do have one thing to do right after I get done with the message, but I, I'd like us to bow together and I want to pray the 30th Psalm for us. I will exalt you, Lord, for you lifted me out of the depths and did not let my enemies gloat over me. Lord, my God, I called to you for help and you healed me. You, Lord, brought me up out of the realm of the dead. You spared me from going down into the pit. Sing the praises of the Lord, you his faithful people. Praise his holy name. For his anger lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. Weeping may stay for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. When I felt secure, I said, I will never be shaken. Lord, when you favored me, you made my royal mountain stand firm. But when you hid your face, I was dismayed. To you, Lord, I called. To you, Lord, I cried for mercy. What is gained if I am silent, if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it proclaim your faithfulness? Hear, Lord, and be merciful to me. Lord, be my help. You turned my wailing into dancing. You removed my sackcloth and clothed me with joy that my heart may sing your praises and not be silent. Lord, my God, I will praise you forever. Amen. There's many more psalms like that. You just need to go look and search because the psalms are an honest reflection of the human heart and they're an honest reflection of the human emotions and experience and they remind you that if these presidents that wrestled with depression and there's kings like David that wrestled with the same thing but they cried out to God for help and God heard their cries and, and God uh, gave them the healing they were looking for.